folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Craft Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. Honestly, I'll be, you know, I'm not gonna make any friends here, but they don't give a shit about craft breweries. That's yeah. what they want, is the lightest, lowest alcohol, least flavorful beer available. They want fried chicken, hamburgers, and Michelob Ultra. Eric Addison opened a craft beer oasis west of Fort Worth in Hudson Oaks, Texas, or where he likes to think of as Michelob Ultra country. Pathfinder Brewery opened at the height of the brewery building frenzy in Texas. After losing not only his original name, but lease space to another brewery, he ended up building his own building from scratch which very well may wind up being the best case scenario. After opening, he expanded outside the brewery with self-distribution, won a GABF Gold, and struggled to find relevance among a sea of breweries deserted of craft beer fans. Yes, I said struggled to find relevance after winning a gold medal for his beer. Not surprisingly, he's got some opinions, thoughts, and feelings about his brewery, the Fort Worth marketplace, and craft beer overall. I love how introspective and thoughtful Eric is. He's the kind of guy I think should have been more successful somehow, it just didn't play out that way. Well, I'll just let him tell the story. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for sharing all your insights, your experiences. Uh, we, we came here to learn what to do by looking at what not to do, but I'm sure we've got some great insights and experiences of what you have learned, and I'm happy to dig into that. Appreciate it. Tell us who you are. are you, have you always lived in Fort Worth? Like, where are you from? What do you do? Who are you? No, I'm not from Fort Worth. I was an IT manager for 20 years before I went out and started a homebrew shop. And the goal was to always open a brewery, so finally got the yeah. yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Right, so you, you had a homebrew shop first? I did. Well, most of the people that we talked to were home brewers to begin with, but very few have owned a homebrew shop. Interestingly enough, this is recording for season five, and one of the other guys in season five was in San Diego. He actually had a homebrew shop and then put a brewery inside of it and then unfortunately closed the whole thing and then got the fuck out of the United States since it's hiding over in uh, Spain. Not hiding, but yeah, you know what uh, I mean. Spain's awesome. I think he won. So I told him that. I think that should be everyone's goal. To close your brewery and move right. out of the country. Gosh, I can't remember the name of the brewery that did that. I've been to that homebrew shop that also has a brewery in it. I can't remember it right now. Ballast Point or something like that? I think Ballast Point did it first. They were obviously much larger. He had home brewing company, and so it was a smaller, just, just him, and he had experience doing it um, and opened up his own place one day and just sort of grew it. But unfortunately... I think the brewery part killed him, but you'll have to listen to the episode it'll, and tell me what you think. It'll do that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How ultimately did you fall in love with craft beer? Where did that whole relationship start? Uh, I'm going to date myself here. So I found out that you could make beer at home before the internet existed. Yeah. So I don't even remember where I learned that you could, but there was a guy in, you know, 50 miles from my house that sold the equipment. So I got a hold of Charlie Papazian's book. Like a Joe Holmberg, 
and uh, went and saw Wally and bought some things off him and got some advice from him. And I brewed a few batches, and it turned out a couple of guys at work were home brewing, so we kind of got some more advice from them. That's how I got started. All right. Was there a particular beer that kind of set you off that you were like, dude, that's awesome. I want to make that. Yeah. So I hated American light lagers in school, college, and, and on. I, I didn't understand what the obsession was with beer because it just sucked. It was so carbonic and it just, just, I hated it. But then um, I had some British beers. I think it was, well, Irish. So I had Guinness, which was Irish, and then I had Harp and Newcastle Brown. So this was, what, 25-plus years ago, mm-hmm. back when it tasted good, you know, before they changed it. The British brown ale is what really got me into beer. At the time, it was very hard to find those kind of beers, and they are very expensive. And that's about the time I learned that you could brew your own. For the first two years that I brewed beer, I, I brewed a version of a British brown ale. I've reached out to Pete Slosberg also, and that he built that whole company based on a brown ale, basically. Uh, if you told somebody today you were going to do that, they'd laugh at you, but... Those oh, yeah. were the beers we all loved. Like that was, I remember Newcastle in the '90s was like just amazing compared to all the crap I drank everywhere else. I, I loved that beer. Yeah, it was great. Now it's now it's too sweet in my opinion. But and funnily enough, as much as I love that style of beer, I don't, we never brewed it at the brewery. Never brewed it commercially. Well, let's fast forward to that. So, how did you get to the point that you were like, dude? The only thing next is I have to be a professional brewer. I'm going to own a brewery. How does that come about? That conversation with your wife? She dare you? What was the deal? You know, I worked in IT for 20 years. I was looking to find my cheese somewhere else. If you've read that book, Who Moved mm-hmm. My Cheese, I was looking to do something else. So I'd written a business plan for a homebrew shop because I didn't have the money for a brewery. Uh, I sat on it for three months because I was scared. I, I didn't want to do that. And I had walked off to a job and I was unemployed for during that time period. And I had just started interviewing again and I had some promising opportunities as an IT manager. I just said, forget it. This is my shot. I'm going to turn down this next promising IT job and start this homebrew shop because the business plan that I wrote says that it'll be good and it'll work. I'll make money. I'll enjoy a better quality of life. It'll just, it's for me. The graph goes up and to the right. And so of course you have, you have no choice. The sales data <laughs> right. is driving the whole thing for you. So was it in Fort Worth? No. So I'm originally from Southern California. So Okay. The homebrew shop was in Fullerton, California, which is Orange County. Funnily enough, the homebrew shop was within three miles of some very successful breweries like The Brewery and Bootleggers Brewery, and then later on Bottle Logic and some other breweries. Yeah, there was one, Noble Ale Works. I remember I really liked some of their beers when back in 11 when I was there. For our white stout, it was their idea. They did it Naughty sauce? That I know. Yeah, Naughty Sauce. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, so when we made ours, that's what I basically did was copied that style of beer from that I learned about from them. Yeah, no, I remember really like it. I was there on a release day for Naughty Sauce, just like, uh, luckily, I just, I happened to be doing a brewery tour up and down the coast for three days. And I walk in like, what the fuck is going on? Everyone's like losing their mind. Turns out it was a great beer. So how long do you have the homebrew shop? Five and a half years, I think. Yeah, five and a half years. So a little bit of foreshadowing, but was, uh, do you think that that was easier or owning a brewery was easier? The homebrew shop was my first entrepreneurial effort, and so it was hard. And I didn't hire my first employee until I think about two and a half years in. Mm, okay. I ran it by myself for two and a half years, and then I hired somebody. And six months later, I hired somebody else, and and then I wound up having I think four people that were working the shop with me. Which one was harder? I mean, I don't know. They're they're both difficult. 
<laughs> starting starting a business is hard. You know? Neither one was easy, right? Yeah. yeah, neither one was easy. That's probably the most accurate answer. So how did you wind up? Uh, did you sell it, close it, and then come to Texas? Or what was the what would happen next? Yeah, so I tried to sell it. And there was a lot of interest, but nobody actually had the money. So I ran it from Texas for about a year. Well, when I opened the homebrew shop, we were the third homebrew shop in the greater area, you know, like 25-mile area. And by the time we closed, there were 13 other homebrew shops Shit. in the area. So I ran it from Texas for a year, and then I realized, you know what? If I were still living in California, I would keep the homebrew shop open because it was making money. But with me being out of state, it was just getting riskier and riskier. Yeah, not much you can really control at that point. Too easy to get behind. You can't fly out every day and fix it. So, okay, that's just it. If I one of, if one of my key staff left, then you know I would have to fly right out there right away and and then work for however long it took to be able to come back. So. When the lease was up, I just decided it was time to close it down. And how long did you give yourself before you decided you wanted to do a brewery after that happened? Oh, the goal was to always do a brewery. I just, yeah. I just didn't have the money. Yeah. So when I came to Texas, I was – well, let's, I'll put it this way. I was going to open a brewery in California when the homebrew shop was open and running. And then my wife and I made the decision to move to Fort Worth. So all the plans to open the brewery in California stopped. And until we moved, and then I had to start all over again. Well, not all over again, but I had to start again in Texas, in Fort Worth when I got here, which was nine years ago. So how did that go? You decided you were going to start a brewery. Obviously, there's a couple of main things you got to really think about. I assume in your business plan, you had competitive advantage and, and why you needed to exist in Orange County. And that had to lay over Fort Worth. How did that look differently as far as the marketplace and the kind of reason for living of your brewery? There's a few different compartments to that answer. So the business model had to be rewritten for Fort Worth because I had to learn about Fort Worth. I had to learn about the demographics. The laws were very different, especially, you know, nine years ago when I got out to Fort Worth. Group hubs were very uncommon. So I had to rewrite the business plan for, for Fort Worth. And so I had to redo my SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, oppositions, threats. I had to redo all of that. So that took me a while. But during that time, I was scouting for a location. There just wasn't any. The more and more I'm hearing that the rent ultimately has been sort of the death knell of the brewery by the end. So I'm going to spend a little more time in these next few seasons really digging into how we picked the location. I'm curious, like how, what were you looking for? Were you trying to be, did it matter the proximity to the other breweries? Did you want traffic? Like, and, and obviously where you would look at today might be different. But at that point, what were you what were you thinking like with location? A brewery is kind of an odd thing because you have manufacturing mm-hmm. and then you also have retail, right? You're trying to get people to come in and hang out, which nine years ago was a pretty rare thing in Texas. In fact, only a brew pub could do that. So that was part of my competitive advantage is I was going to be a brew pub. I was going to sell most of my beer across the bar where the highest margin is. Uh, because the three breweries in town in Fort Worth weren't doing that. They were production breweries. They, they brewed a massive amount of beer and sold it to a distributor. And the distributor took you know that profit away from them and distributed their beer. So that was one of my competitive advantages. Nowadays, it's common to, for people to open a brewing room, a brew pub and have a tasting room. And in fact, I think breweries can, can uh, sell beer over the bar now. In Texas. So a lot has changed in the nine years that I was here. As far as the location, did, 
Did you do the same amount of square footage as what you were looking for in California? Did you change that at all from the original plan? We wound up being bigger than I wanted. So I had talked to a lot of brewery owners, you know, so this was 10 years ago. And all of them said, man, I wish I would have gone bigger from the beginning. I wish I would have bought bigger equipment. I wish I had a bigger building. I wish I was in a building that had units so I could take over more of the units. So I knew I needed 3,000 square feet to run the brewery, including a decent-sized tasting room. So I was looking for something three to 5,000 square feet. Ultimately, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but ultimately I had to build the building from scratch. I had to develop it myself. And it just wasn't that much more expensive to go from a 5,000 square foot building to a 10,000 square foot building. Yeah, I'm sure, especially if you're building it. You know, traffic and, and all of those things, uh, you know, I wanted to be in Fort Worth. I wanted to be on the west side of Fort Worth in particular, or even downtown. And I, I couldn't find anything. I was in lease negotiations with one person and he wanted to see my business plan. You know, I'd, I'd spent at least a year building that out, right? Talking to CPAs, talking to brewery owners, doing my own research, reading the laws from ABC, reading the laws from TTV. That's the federal side of things. And this guy who's trying to lease me the building just wanted me to hand over all that work I had done so that he could presumably take it and copy the business model. <laughs> I didn't think that was fair. So I told him, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I told you from the beginning because he had asked early on and I said, no, I'm not going to give you my business plan. We were actually negotiating the lease rate. And he said, yeah, you got to send me your business plan. I said, look, I told you I'm not going to and I'm not going to. And that was a deal breaker for me because he wasn't going to lease it to me without it. I wasn't going to give it to him. You went from planning to lease a three to 5,000 square foot building to buying land and building it. Um, obviously, that most people, that would be their dream. I'd much rather own the building if I could. But if the business plan originally had rent in it, it was not exactly a few hundred grand, almost a million maybe, to build something. So how did you weather that storm? Just like, oh, I'm just going to buy it instead. Fuck it. Like That's that's not a small choice. What I mean? No, it wasn't a small choice at all. In the end, it wound up being one of our most significant investments. It was solely out of necessity. I couldn't find anything. I started looking at East Fort Worth. I couldn't find a location anywhere. There were two locations that I looked at. One of them is now Hop Fusion. Mm -hmm. And I pass on their building because the ceilings are too short. And another one was what is now Cowtown Brewery because Sean actually locked in the lease while I was calling to ask, <laughs> really? you know, the particulars. Yeah, I think I got the price of it. And then I was, you know, thinking about it for a week or so. And, and then I called them back to, you know, go go look at the building and talk about it some more. No, I actually did go look at the building. And they said, oh, no, it's already been leased out now. So those are two locations that I passed on. I was in lease negotiations and that didn't work out. I looked at two buildings. Uh, one I passed on, the other one, you know, Sean grabbed before I did. And it turned out to be great for him, very happy for him. And I'm also very happy for Hop, the Hop Fusion boys too. So it was purely out of necessity. I had to come up with a building to put this brewery in or it was never going to happen. I started looking at buying buildings. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll figure out how to buy a building. And I couldn't find anything. I don't know what brought me out to Hudson Oaks, which is, you know, 10, 15 minutes west of Fort Worth. But I went and met with the city and they very much wanted a brewery in their city and found a piece of property that was priced right. And away I went. Did you have to completely restructure like investments and banking and all that kind of crap to be able to make that work? Luckily, no. So I knew from the beginning, there's a couple of things. I did not want a partner. <laughs> I don't want 
the hassles of a partner where, you know, it's marriage without sex. And the other thing I didn't want was to take out a loan to start a brewery, which is why I didn't have the money earlier. Oh, okay. Because, uh, you know, you, you talked in the beginning about competitive advantage. And of the breweries that I talked to that had failed or, or had closed, they all said the same thing. They were underfunded. They were so passionate about beer. They, you know, they were home brewers, award-winning home brewers, but they didn't have any business experience. They didn't have enough money to start and operate a brewery for a couple of years until it was cash flow positive. And so we waited until we had that money in hand without taking out a big loan before we did it. It's actually the same thing that I did, interestingly enough. It didn't work out for me, but I had no partners and we paid everything cash. And we would have closed a lot sooner had we not. But at the end of the day, like I told you on the phone the other day, I still would have closed. <laughs> it would have, would have happened much yeah. faster. So you've got the building, you build it. How long did that process take? I assume it took longer than just moving in and renovating bathrooms into an existing shell. So. Yeah. So there was a house on the property when I bought it. And Texas Flip and Move actually came and took the house away. <laughs> it's the TV show. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's pretty cool. So they came and took the house away. And I you know, talked to a bunch of contractors and hired one of them. You know, they're telling you nine months. So I figured, oh, okay, it'll take a year because, you know, they're never accurate. And it took two, about two and a half years really? to develop the property. In the end, yeah. What about the equipment? During that time, did you pre-buy the stuff? Back then, lead times were 8 to 12 months consistently. So how'd you time that? Yeah, so when we started construction, so it's funny you should mention that because I was ready to buy the equipment, but I wasn't going to buy it unless I had a place to put it. As soon as construction got really going, you know, in the beginning of construction, the first couple of weeks, you know, people show up and there's a trailer on site, but not much has happened. They're kind of staging and not much is happening. So I waited until people were actually working before I big excavators out there and everything, before buying the equipment, knowing that there was a, at the time, I think seven or eight month lead time. And I figured, okay, the building will be done. And, and then, you know, I'll, I'll receive the equipment. It got so bad that Alpha was like, okay, we're ready to ship your equipment. I'm like, I have nowhere to put it. I <laughs> literally have nowhere to put it. And they were really good. They're like, we understand lots going on. You know, steel prices are fluctuating, blah, blah, blah. There was a lot of chaos. And they were really good about holding on to my equipment for almost a year. Really? Yeah. And in the end, they said, look, we can't hold this anymore for you. We've got to get it out. So when it was all delivered, the area was all excavated and the foundation was poured and the erection of the building had started. But most of that stuff sat in the parking lot <laughs> for six plus months. All up to a year before we could bring it inside. Yeah, you actually see that a lot. So it's not that abnormal, but it still sucks. I'm sure it's terrifying to have that much money worth of stuff sitting out there, especially if it's your money, not a bank's money. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. You got, you know, $300,000 worth of equipment just sitting in the parking lot, hoping that somebody doesn't come by and take a hammer to it or, you know, steal the small parts. And so it's all stainless and shiny, you know. So I, I was pretty worried about that. I got worked out. Speaking of the equipment. How did you choose what you chose? Like what manufacturer did you go with? Did you obviously didn't have a bunch of commercial experience where you brewed on 15 different brands and knew the best one of all of them. So curious, how'd you, how'd you select what you selected? I contacted several, maybe five different equipment manufacturers and got quotes from them. And of course, figuring out what to order, that was just discussions with brewery owners. A lot of people were recommending Premier Stainless. And I was all set to buy Premier Stainless. And then right before I did, I got in touch with Alpha Brewing Ops. They just have the best equipment, the best quality at the right price. So of the really good equipment, they're the most affordable of the high-end equipment, in my opinion. So I wound up going with them. I also thought 
shipping from Nebraska would be ch- to Texas would be cheaper than shipping from California to Texas because Premier Stainless is in California somewhere. I can't remember where. Were you happy with the equipment overall? Were there anything specific that you would have changed about the sizing or any of the specifics? Yeah, Alpha Brewing Ops, they make really good stuff. Their equipment is good. They support it well. They're very good about, you know, answering questions and sending you replacement parts and things like that. We didn't have a lot of broken things or whatever, but but we did have a lot of questions and they were really good about helping us with that. Well, I want to get into like what exactly Pathfinder is and how you selected the beers and what you were going to brew and how you decided who was going to brew. But let's take a quick break and when we come right back, we'll get into that. Sounds good. about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about, let's let's start with Pathfinder. How did you pick the name? What does it mean to you? And what should it mean to us? Yeah, I I wish I had a better story for that. When I picked the name, there were over 5,000 breweries in the U.S. at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. I went through a bunch of iterations of various names and one of one of the names was actually going to be Cowtown Brewing. Really? And yeah, it was the same thing. So I was in California, I was trying to think of a name and I I was going to register cowtownbrewing.com cuz it was available and I thought about it for 3 weeks and when I went back to register it, Sean from Cowtown Brewing had already taken it. So that's good. And again, I'm I'm happy for him. So yeah, there were a lot of there were 5,000 breweries. It was hard to find a unique name. It was hard to find something that resonated with us. But a big part of what I did at the homebrew shop was help people learn about beer styles. Mm-hmm. You know, people would come in and say, you know, I want to brew a beer, but I don't know what I want to brew. Okay, fine. Let's start from the basics. You want to brew something light or dark? Okay, light. You know, do you want it bitter? Do you want it sweet? Uh, sweet, you know, oh, maybe a Kolsch. You know, you okay with fruiting? So I went through this kind of, you know, question and answer with a lot of customers and then I would brew sometimes weekly. So I had a lot of beer to share and I was exposing people to beer styles that they had never had before. So when the brewery came around and I was looking for a name, we had a bunch of names that just didn't like psycho brewing, things like that. It really just wasn't me, but Pathfinder was Pathfinder was something, you know, I had spent five and a half years helping people learn about beer styles. And I was hoping that when I, you know, moved to Fort Worth, that I could continue that on because I, I think being educated about craft beer is a big part of the craft scene. Did you actually go through a trademark attorney or just do kind of your online research yourself to kind of try to figure out what was available? Yeah. So I did my own search. I, these days, or at least those days, you start a company by, you know, getting a website, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the, the first step. You get a website, you get an email address. And nowadays, you know, you get on the socials and that's, that's really how you're, your business starts. I wasn't worried about trademark protection. I've talked to attorneys and, and people who've gone through that, and especially people who've gone through it. And those are those are only as enforceable as you're willing to spend money to enforce them. 
the only concern I had was that Nissan, because they have a <laughs> Nissan Pathfinder vehicle. I was thinking that I might get in trouble with them. That's why the, the name of the brewery is not Pathfinder. The name of the brewery is Pathfinder Brewery. Mm-hmm. And that is very specific. I didn't want there to be any confusion with Nissan, the ve- you know, Pathfinder vehicle. That was going to be one of my next questions is that if you look, there's a bunch of other breweries that have a beer called Pathfinder. And obviously, the last few years, there's been just a ton of cease and desist and these major arguments over trademarks. Did you even think about going after those people? Did you have, what was your opinion? It's like, who gives, who gives a no, shit? I, no, if somebody wants to call their beer Pathfinder, I have no problem because my brewery was Pathfinder Brewery. It was, you know, it's unique. It's uh, If somebody calls it Pathfinder, their beer Pathfinder, I didn't care. And there were already a dozen Pathfinder beers in existence when I established the brewery. Um, oh, really? My, I learned my philosophy on the whole trademark thing among amongst breweries from Sam Calgioni. If he found out another brewery brewed a beer that competed with his name, one of his names of his beers, he would just call them up and say, hey, it's Sam. I just want to let you know that we have that name already, and I, I want you guys to stop using it. And they would. You know, it's it's Sam Calgioni, so of course <laughs> you, you would not do that. So when, when um, a local brewery here in Fort Worth used the name of an established beer that I had, you know, the beer had been in distribution for a year and a half, I just emailed them. I tried to call, but I couldn't get in, get through that way. So I just contacted them and said, hey, look, you know, do you guys plan on distributing this beer? I hope not. You know, I've been using that name for a year and a half and it's been in distribution and stuff. I don't, I don't want to confuse the market. And they were like, oh, yeah, uh, sorry, we didn't know it was a one-off. And I was like, okay, great, no problem. You mean somebody in craft beer was cool to each other? That's weird. Must be different at Fort Worth. No, it's really not. <laughs> Just kidding. It's uh, it's different in other states. You know, that's one thing that California has going for it, but Texas has a lot of other things to offer for sure. Well, so as a you know, obviously avid home brewer, a guy who owned a homebrew store, different beers and changing things up constantly has got to be sort of in your DNA. How did you decide on what your product lineup was going to be? Did, did you plan on having four cores and then annual seasonals? Or did you just say, like, we really thought we want to brew whenever we want to brew it? I think it was a combination of the of the two. But the philosophy of the brewery, the ethos of the brewery was to expertly brew cl- classic styles, right? Mm-hmm. My philosophy was that if we brewed classic styles well, very well, that they could compete with gimmick beers and, you know, all the Back then, hazy IPAs were a fad, right? We all know that they're not a fad now. No, they're still a fad. They're just not going away. They're a long fad. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah, so that was, that was it. That's, that's how we decided, you know, what beers to, to brew. And I, you know, I I said we were going to have a light beer and then, you know, three like medium colored beers and then, you know, a dark beer. And we're going to start with that, that kind of those five styles would always be our core beers. And then we would brew seasonals and one-offs and things like that. It never worked out that way, but that was the plan. With the homebrew shop, obviously you ran that by yourself for a few years. Were you planning on doing something similar with the brewery or did, did you plan to hire a brewer for the house guy? Like, no. What was the plan? Yeah, I knew from the very beginning I couldn't brew the beer and run the company. It was just going to be too much because my goal was to focus on operations, marketing, and sales. I was still the what I considered myself the chief brewing officer, so I wrote the recipes, you know, I had final say on everything beer related, especially as a home brewer and not a professional brewer. I leaned heavily on my professional brewers that I hired 
to, you know, make the wort and do fermentation and stuff like that. I got to do the fun part and, you know, when it was in the bright tank to try it before we carved it, after we carved it, kind of sample things along the way. I got to do the fun part of the brewing operations, but I, I relied heavily on a professional brewer to execute. Well, so that was, especially for me in that timeline in Texas, that was a challenge to find a professional experienced brewer who was good. Um, those are three things that rarely went together at that point in time in Texas, at least for me. How'd you go about finding this unicorn brewer who's going to be the best guy ever to make, um, what do you say, classic styles well? Yeah, expertly brewed classic styles. Um, so the answer is I never did find that unicorn. I found several very experienced, capable brewers. Most of them were okay with me being the, I, I call it chief brewing officer, right? Because I was writing the recipes and, and, you know, making decisions about the beer. I just needed somebody to, you know, make wort and manage fermentation and, and then later on to manage our barrels and things like that because I didn't have experience as a professional doing those things. But I never found that unicorn. I, I did find several experienced, capable brewers, though. Is there some strategy you went about to find them? Is there something that we could learn that, how do you find these people? How do you interview these people? You know, it's, uh, this was all during- <laughs> You can you say know, I have no fucking during, clue. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have any secret sauce. I could just tell you, you know, I used Pro Brewer. That was probably the one that got me the most hits and then just you know word of mouth locally i had met a few brewers i was hitting them up personally and then also letting if they weren't available i was also saying hey you know if you know anybody who is available send them my way and so i got some traction from that but mostly from pro brewer and so in the beginning what was the plan uh, obviously you had a business plan written and you'd worked on it long enough that it had to have strategic pipelines so where were you going to generate revenue from distribution online you know, tasting room, back alley, where where did the money come into the brewery? What was the plan? The plan, and this goes back to what you said in the beginning about competitive advantage. I was going to be one of the few breweries that had a tasting room, and I was going to sell beer over the bar at the highest margin possible. And that was going to hope, that was going to, you know, pay the overhead and keep the company running, and then distribution would, would be the, you know, profit, basically. That's okay. kind of how I carved it out. So the crux of the plan was to really have a self-sustaining tasting room brew pub and extra money would come in from the distribution piece, which that's exactly it. sky was the limit there kind of in a way. But so in that sense, did you have any plans? And, and I think a lot of us sort of learned that along the way, but did you have any plans in the tasting room of how you're going to get people to come there? And I will tell you absolutely my plan was make great beer. They're going to come sit there and they're going to come back and tell their friends. And nah, that did not really work out. Make it me. and they will come, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was something I'd, you know, discuss with my brewery owner friends is, you know, as the number of breweries increased, you couldn't just make good beer and be open. That wasn't enough to draw people in. You, you know, you had to draw people in with trivia nights and events and, you know, those kind of things. When I had my business plan and I was opening the brewery, you know, trying to, the building developed and then uh, the equipment, the brewery actually up and running. No one else was doing these things. No one else had trivia nights and events and vendor fairs and all of these other things that are very common now. So that was going to be my competitive advantage. That was what was going to set us apart from other breweries. Do you know off the top of your head, it's a weird question, but how many seats you had inside? Occupancy was, it was either 178 or 214, depending on what document from the architect you looked at. 
but we were unusual in that we had an outside patio that was not fenced in or not, you know, segregated in any way. And then we had a huge mall area where people could set up a tent and, you know, bring lawn chairs and things like that if they wanted to. While our building, our tasting room could occupy probably 200 people, the site could easily handle 500, 600 people, maybe more. It's a lot of upside there in that, that department. Let's talk about one of my least favorite parts of the industry. You decided you were going to self-distribute, which sounds beautiful on paper. And when you actually get in your truck and start doing it, I think is one of the worst things you could possibly do in the industry. <laughs> so how did it look? Did you did you hire someone to do it? Were you doing it out of the back of your Mercedes? Like what, what was the plan there? Uh, well, the plan was to never drive a Mercedes. I drive a Subaru. That's <laughs> that's my car. It's very choice. sensible and and it's all wheel drive. That's a beautiful car. That's it. Uh, yeah. No, you know, I I, I knew we were going to start small and build. So I hired a salesperson, and there, you know, there were sales and delivery, right? So they would sell the beer and go out and deliver it. Uh, and it took us a while to actually get to the point where we had to get a truck. So I bought a truck for us to make those deliveries in. And then eventually this, I had a full-time salesperson and a full-time delivery person. Okay. And so did you have goals for these people? Was it just kind of sell what you could like did, in your plan? Did you know where your profitability break even was on the distribution part? I didn't. So just to clarify it. And when I went yeah. back and did the math, I was like, fuck, <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's been a little while since I looked at my business business plan and for all budding entrepreneurs out there, you write this business plan, you you know, you build a pro forma, you go through all these things you're supposed to do, you follow the SBA guidelines for writing a business plan, and you have all this information. And then you open and it just kind of goes out the window. You have to be nimble, you have to change, you have to adapt to, to the environment. And so um, I can't remember what my distribution numbers were. In my mind, we were always at the beginning of setting up distribution. The focus was on the tasting room and we were trying to build distribution, but it was a slog. I remember at one point I was like, oh, wow, we've got beer. We're all set up to sell beer. And a few, you know, our local guys like chefs and places like that, you know, wanted our beer. And I was like, wow, I don't know what to charge for this beer. I realized that I had never, I had numbers in my business plan, but they didn't make any sense because all of the cost inputs had changed. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back and figure out what it cost me to, to brew all of these beers. And then that's a lesson in itself, right? Yeah. I mean, there are CPA cost accounting CPAs. And at the end of the day, it's kind of a guess. Like, what do you include in the cost of the beer? Do you include the labor that it costs to do it? Do you include electricity? Do you include water? Like, so you have the cost of goods, which is easy, right? Hops, yeast, barley, things like that. But there are all these other cost inputs that you can or cannot pick in that. And then how do you choose a profit margin based on what you're considering your costs are? So at one point I had built models for both, right? Just solely cost of goods. And then I knew, you know, I needed a percentage margin in order to make money on cost of goods. And then I put in all the other cost inputs and I had a lower margin for that. And at the end of the day, you find out real fast what the market will bear. You can say, I want to make, you know, this margin on a product, a beer, if the market won't, won't buy it, then you got a choice. You know, one, you're probably never going to brew it again, but <laughs> do you sell it for less or do you hope you could sell it in your tasting room versus distribution? Yeah. Well, distribution is always a tough game because a lot of people have that 
number in their head of what it what what they can sell it for. I've even seen a brewery even in San Antonio, good beer, love the guys there, they're great. But when they went to Distro, they were like, "Well, here's what we make at the tasting room, so here's what we have to charge to go to Distro." And they priced their coal shit 90 bucks a slim. People were like, literally, get the fuck out of here. Like, we're not buying your slim for you know, just like an $8 glass of coal. But that's, it made sense to and, them. So. And that's what prices are now, right? Because <laughs> inflation has driven the price, you know, cost of brewing beer has gone up. CO2 has doubled. Electricity has doubled. Grain went up 50%. Hops went up like 30%. So, you yeah. know, these days, $90. And in my mind, that's part of the problem for struggling breweries right now is that they're trying to get a good margin on their beer and accounts don't want to pay for it No, because there's a brewery in town that brews mediocre beer and will sell that mediocre beer for less. The accounts will buy the mediocre beer for less instead of your excellent award-winning beer for more. Well, I can assure you that that was happening in 2012 when I opened as well. So it, uh, I'm not sure that's going away anytime soon. No, I doubt it either. And especially with the big brewery. Economies of scale. I remember, I don't think that La Folie was you know as good a beer as some of the mixed culture stuff in Texas. But if you looked at the price of New Belgium's you know barrel-aged sour La Folie, it was, it was fucking dirt cheap. I think it was like 100 and maybe 20 bucks a slim. And the rest, maybe it might have been 90 a slim. And the rest of us couldn't even get close to that. Just just the time it took to do it. But they did such volume that they could. And so at some point, you're still competing with that too. And even though you're one of only four breweries, how many are there in the Fort Worth area now? And now, well, since we closed, I think there's 19 and 19 breweries in Fort Worth. And I count Parker County because there's now two breweries in Parker County. One of them's named Parker County, isn't it? I think. Yeah, Parker yeah. County Brewing Company. Yeah. So you hit something on the head. Exactly what I dealt with is I made excellent award-winning craft beer and I would go into account to sell it and they liked the beer, but they wanted the same price as Michelob Ultra. And it's like, I can't sell my beer at Michelob Ultra prices. And they're like, okay, I'll just buy Michelob Ultra instead. We ran into, again, before we went mixed culture, sort of the same thing. You would go in and you would try to have that conversation. What was worse for us in the long term was not only did they want that price point, but they wanted that volume. And so the second that your keg didn't do that volume, because it's unknown, unproven, People don't reach for it the same way. It's not 3.9% alcohol, so they can't drink 12 of them and still walk home. They didn't do the same volume. And they were like, well, that's our paradigm. If you can't do that volume, then you can't stay on tap. And so you would lose, oh, absolutely. lose draft for that reason too. Completely unfair. Totally sucks, but I get it. I mean, they're a retailer. They don't really give a shit about authenticity. <laughs> so, I, I think that sums up pretty much trying to sell beer in, well, maybe America, but definitely in DFW is the accounts. They don't give a shit. They just want cheap beer. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's, it's so competitive for them that they're just looking at margins. And if you're trying to five and six X something, you get to, again, you get to a point where an eight or $9 glass of Kolsch isn't going to move. So I get where they're coming from, but it definitely makes it challenging. Just, just look at the margins that they have. Like they're buying, I guess we had a beer at $75 a slim. So there's, here, let me get my calculator out. You know, there's, gosh, I can't, I can't remember details right now, but there's, let's say there's 40 pints yeah, in that. Right around 40. And they're charging $6. What's that? 40? 40 is what yeah. Use, yeah. So, and they're charging $6 a pint for that beer. That's 240. Well, they paid $75 for it. They got a margin of 165. But when I try to get that same margin, they bulk, right? They want me to, to sell them beer at less margin than they're getting. Now, I, I guess it's different because, you know, they're a retail place and all that. But I, I think the margins from accounts are pretty appropriate. They're, they're doing very well and they can afford to pay breweries more for their beer. Yeah. 
But I think at some point, like you said, there was just so much choice that they, not even that they're lazy. It's just almost like, why would I want to work twice as hard for no more money? That It makes sense to them. Like, well, let's next, just sell easy shit. Yeah, that points to your consumer, right? Ultimately, in DFW, Nick Ultra is the beer. Like, that's what craft breweries are competing against. And you can't. No, not even uh, close. Yeah. And you have other markets where, you know, they have a true passion for craft beer and uh, and they'll pay for it. And that's just not the case here locally. All right. So from the distribution perspective, one question, obviously, you talked to a bunch of brewery owners before you opened and even along the way. And, and then you had some of your own experience there. But you never went with a third party distributor that that had to have been something that was on the table at some point. And why did you decide not to? In a way, the decision was made for me. I couldn't get any distributor to return my call. There was one distributor in town that met with me. You know, he agreed that the beer was good, but he wasn't really interested in bringing on another brewery. So, and you know, I've heard horror story after horror story from brewery owners about distributors. So I was pretty skeptical. And I think a lot of that came through in the meeting that we had because I didn't want to be just another account that they had and their salespeople would go into an account and they would sell any Belgian dark strong ale. Didn't matter if it was mine or somebody else's, right? And I didn't want that kind of relationship. So between not being able to find a distributor, ultimately we had no choice but to distribute ourselves which you have a lot more control. You're not locked into a 99-year contract. I mean, it's it, it's a big hassle. It's a big pain in the butt. But in my limited opinion, inexperienced opinion, it's much better than actually having a distributor. Yeah, it's got pros and cons on both sides. I think it definitely depends on the owner and the leadership team and what they, what they value and what they're good at. But I can honestly tell you, having researched both and having these conversations over and over, that it sucks both ways. It's just a question of like which one you can overcome better, I guess, or what what suck you're good at. Yeah. One thing I did come out here's a tip for anybody looking to start a beer or looking to you know get into distribution. You can sign a, a distribution deal with a distributor that says you know they'll take this beer and deliver to this address. So like you want them to come pick up your beer and deliver to I don't know HEB or whatever, Shrick's or any of those other places, you don't have to give up a whole area, a whole zip code or a whole, you know, Tarrant County or anything like that. You can sign a distribution deal with them for deliver this beer to that address and start with that. If they manage that well, then maybe they're the distributor for you and then you could open up the the scale. So that's one tip that I did learn from my due diligence on that. Yeah. A lot of distributors won't do it for that reason. Because um, they know that they won't. And they won't. Yeah, they, they won't they, look good. They really, and, and you know what? When I had the idea of opening the brewery, seriously opening the brewery 10 years ago, distributors were paying breweries for their distribution rights. Mm-hmm. You would get thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And nowadays, no, you can't even get a distributor to pick you up, much less pay you for those distribution rights. I think it was in Texas, it was like 16 or 17 that it became illegal. But up until that point, there were no issues with it. And maybe it was oh, okay, early. yeah. The distributors own Texas, that is for sure. I, I learned that they have that whole thing locked down they spent a lot of money in congress and, and they own the distribution in texas yeah and there are a couple that are decent but by and large most of the ones i dealt with they're pretty much 
hot garbage. So be careful. Self-distribution is probably a good idea in Texas. I got to tell you, I listened to a lot of your podcasts and your personal experience about distribution as part of my due diligence trying to find a distributor. <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate it. It's the least I could do. The whole concept of this is to pay forward my pain and suffering so that other people don't have to experience it. So if I can do I'm, that. I'm kind of hoping to do the same. I'm hoping I can give a pearl of wisdom to somebody who's looking at starting or already open and wondering what the hell to do. Well, so far, so good. So we're going to get a little more into kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what went wrong, I, I think, in the next segment. But before we take a break, I did want to ask, do you, do you know, like at the end, how many accounts or maybe at your peak, how many accounts you had of distribution? I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to say. I'll tell you, we at our top, I think we had 30 accounts, which is terrible. Did you have a region or did you kind of have like we centered on, you know, the Fort Worth area downtown and uh, whatever the city you're in a little bit west of there. And then did you go to Dallas? Did you even like try to mess with that? Yeah. So in the end, it's funny you should say that. It's like you, it's like you've walked in those shoes. Uh, <laughs> we started picking up Dallas because we had saturated Parker County and we had got in everywhere in Tarrant that we could. And so the only way we were going to sell more beer is to drive to Dallas and Denton. We wound up going all the way up to Denton to deliver beer. Den's a little honeypot, though. I did pretty well in Denton. but Those guys are great. You know, it's a college town. They, I think they have a, a pretty strong appreciation for craft beer there. And the people up there are just really – I like the accounts that we had in Denton. They were just cool people. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually said this on the show, but I really don't like Dallas. But Denton, on the other hand, is cool. And I like Fort Worth, too. Fort Worth's cool. It's a little funkier. Okay, good. Yeah. But, but Dallas can eat a big fat. All right. So let's take, <laughs> let's take a quick break on that note. I'm going to grab a beer on this break, and then we'll be back. And I want to hear about kind of some of the struggles and what happened. So let's uh, be right back. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. Regular listeners of the show will be entertained to know that I'm drinking an IPA because I typically don't, but I happen to have one. So uh, 
today's an IPA day. What are you drinking? All right. Uh, I'm actually drinking a Belgian Vip beer. It's uh, it's called F Cancer. Is one of the beers that we offered when the brewery was open. It's a special beer for me because we brewed it in celebration of my wife being in remission from cancer for a year. Oh, that's so badass. It's a special beer. Man. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. We we used to drink Bucks to Brexelinus in the pool every mm. summer. And so when it came time to celebrate her remission, I asked her what, what she wanted me to brew. And she said, brew that beer. So this is my version of Bucks to Brexelinus. Yeah, that's cool. One of the big advantages of owning the brewery is you get to be creative with stuff like that. So Yeah, I love it. That was the part I loved. I Unfortunately, I didn't get as big a reception as I would have hoped for, but you know, hmm. especially with the name, I would think that you'd at least get some uh, attention for it, but no news media picked up that we were doing that. There were a lot of people that appreciated. We had people come in the tasting room and they said, I'm a cancer survivor. I love that you make this beer and it's a good beer. We, you know, thank you for making this beer. So we did have a lot of that. It, it just wasn't a commercial success. All the more reason why you should brew at your house and no longer at a brewery. So, fuck them. All right. Yeah. So, when did you get open? What was the year? So, when you say open, you mean to the public, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, where you had a bunch of beer you know, in there, but the lights weren't on or whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Because getting open is a, is a long process and there are multiple stages, as you know. So, when we were open to the public, we opened July 11th. We tried to be open July 4th and we just couldn't do it. So, July 11th of 2020. Perfect timing, right? Wow. He yeah, just snuck in there, right? Uh, <laughs> so from that trajectory, like, what did it look like? You know, you don't have to obviously show your sales graph, but like for me, especially and for most people that I know that you'll have some good months in there, but overall it was just kind of like this jumping around ups and downs and some quiet weeks that just sort of killed the quarter type thing. What did it look like for you? Was it just consistent growth until the day it wasn't or not? Uh, that's a really good question. And ultimately, it was spikes, right? There were seasons. We would do really well in summer and spring mm-hmm. and horrible in winter and even not so good in fall. Yeah, it was it was very much a like up and down situation. You know, going back to when we opened, when we first opened July 11, 2020, you couldn't even be open. You could only sell beer to go. So here we are, a brand new brewery, and people were coming to buy beer and they couldn't taste it. They could only buy it in a can at draft prices yeah and that you know that lasted for three months and then we went through the whole 25 percent opening and 50 percent opening and and then finally like i think it was september we could open at 100 percent capacity so the first maybe six months of our operation we were you know we were had one hand tied behind our back so it, it was definitely we did not hit the ground running we hit the ground at a crawl whimpering and, and you know just trying to like you know asking myself like should I should I just wait till COVID's over to you know try and operate a brewery? Like, what's the point of doing this when and, and super preferences changed during that time, right? During COVID, they all Quickly, decided yeah. that yeah, nobody wanted to go to a tasting room even when you could legally go. They were all got used to buying their you know six pack or four pack of craft beer at the grocery store at ridiculously cheap prices because you had to buy food. And you might as well grab your beer while you're there. So the whole you know tasting room business model, which is what I, which was where I was going to make all my money, <laughs> at least initially, the first couple of years, according to my business plan, the first couple of years, all the money was going to be made through the tasting room. That was all out the window. That, that was tough. Yeah. But when we did operate, it was very seasonal. I was surprised at how seasonal the business was. And is that, was that normal or do you know, was that normal for the other businesses in your area? Is, 
Honestly, I was in New Braunfels. It's kind of like old playground for Texas. So we had busy summers and pretty shitty Januarys. But for the rest of the time, it was consistent-ish, but inherent to where you were or? Uh, I think a lot of that was the environment. You know, it was COVID. It was post-COVID. Consumer preferences had changed. It's also a sign of the times, too. You know, like what I said, I planned on opening. We were going to be the fourth brewery when we got open. We were the seventh or eighth brewery. And a year later, there were 19 other breweries. So we were, you know, there were 20 breweries in Tarrant County and Parker County. So Fort Worth and just outside of Fort Worth where we were. The competition, like it, it was real. Another brewery would open up and you would see sales slump. They would open up a couple of months later, you'd see sales slump and then they would slowly recover. It's a tough fight. Yeah, it's a tough fight. Well, with that much competition and you would see tasting room business go, did you notice, and this is going to Again, not empirically, you don't have to look at your charts, but just guesswork. Do you think it hit your tasting room harder to have that much competition or your distribution business harder? Were they developing more, you know, we've got XYZ brewery on tap and we can't give you a handle until they're gone type thing. Or they took your handle when the new guy came in. Poor girl. Where do you think you got hit worse? Or <laughs> was it coming across the board? Yeah. Our, our distribution struggled from the beginning. I, you know, we were always in its infancy. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, it ever matured so our, our tasting room took the hit yeah with the uh, increased competition did you do anything specific well that's a weird one I, three sips of ipa and i can't fucking talk do things specific to try to combat that you mentioned trivia nights you know live music stuff like that where did any of those things move the needle and what did you try uh we tried a lot of different things and very few of them made any success because we figured out that location is probably the key factor here's what has changed in the environment, right? There are 20 breweries in the area now. There's no one, unless they're looking to, you know, click beers on untapped in a different brewery, no one's going to drive past three local breweries. And I say local meaning, you know, five miles from their house to drive 15 miles away to come to, for instance, my brewery, right? Mm -hmm. So as, as all these breweries started opening up, we couldn't get Fort Worth to come out to just outside. We were just outside of west of fort worth and we just couldn't draw that crowd to us because they would have to drive past three to five breweries to get to us yeah well interesting timing i just happened to be looking on facebook and i'm still a member of the fort worth let's talk craft beer facebook group and charlie that runs it he had posted sort of that same question like what are the breweries that you haven't been to and and why and it was pretty much everybody's like oh we went to xyz brewery but now we don't want to drive 25 minutes and and quite frankly if you drink like maybe you shouldn't be driving 50 minutes round trip i don't know right so i think the market i don't want to say it grew up let's not go that far but maybe it started getting more responsible um i'm not so sure i'd agree with that well for one you know we weren't 50 minutes away or 50 miles away we're 15 minutes outside of fort worth at the at the worst Mm -hmm. so it wasn't a question of distance it was a question of other options there were too many options for the beer consumers and it's funny you should mention that page and that person because you could tell which breweries he supports Mm -hmm. and likes and you could tell which breweries he doesn't support and doesn't like and we never found his support do you know why probably because we're just outside of fort worth i don't know i'd love to ask him (laughs) oh i'll I'll ask i'll call him out for you no problem doing that it doesn't matter at this point the answer is irrelevant but it's funny, since you mentioned his page and his name, I thought I would point that out. Yeah, and I think we can get into all that if you want now. But I, I will say, when I looked up your untapped ratings, your kind of your Yelp stuff, granted you weren't open too long, it was a couple of years, but still, that's long enough to get some negative feedback. 
you really didn't have any, considering what we we've had a lot of fun looking through some of these in the past and like making fun of the dipshits who post dipshit stuff. You kind of had pretty good reviews overall. I think we had better than pretty good reviews by every metric. We were the best brewery in Parker County. You know, Facebook, Untapped, Yelp, Google reviews. We had a higher rating than any brewery in Parker County. And we were at the highest rating with all of the DFW breweries. So, you know, the best breweries in DFW were scoring a 4.7, for instance, on Google reviews. And we were a 4.7. So, you know, we gave great service because I insisted on it. You know, we had a great product at a great location, and we should have done better. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question. So a lot of people will spend a lot of time cultivating those relationships, you know, responding on Google. Some people have that opinion that you have to respond to everything. Some people don't ever look at it. And so the question would be, do you feel that there's any monetary value to that? Like, obviously, you're closed today, so we could use that as a metric. But in your opinion, did you did you see an uptick in loyalty? Did you see people coming and going, wow, I saw you had a great Google review, so I figured I must try it out. Or you know, is there a monetary you know, causation? Or right? can, you, can you correlate those two, I guess, at all, in your opinion? That is an excellent question. I wish I was a PhD and I could do the research on that. Well, you are uh, a nerd. Isn't that close enough? You told me you were a nerd. So. I am a nerd. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I, I don't know. I'm From personal experience, I would say it didn't. As we, as our ratings grew, or as we gained more followers on whatever social program you were talking about, Facebook, Instagram, we've at the very end we started getting on TikTok, and that was a, not a good decision in my opinion. We did not see, we did not equate the number of followers and likes, followers to the page and likes to posts to increase business. Mm-hmm. But I will say this: if you don't do those things you will not get business. So I don't know that that it helps you, but it certainly hurts you to not do it. So did you guys invest in advertising on those social media platforms? We did. I don't think there was a no. return on it necessarily, is what I'm asking? No, there wasn't. You know, okay. I would spend, I spent a few hundred dollars a month for probably six months. I don't know, maybe, maybe a tiny bit more business because of it. Maybe I turned, you know, got a couple of people to come out you know, one time or something like that and leave a, you know, five-star review. <laughs> they live in North Richmond Hills and they're not going to mm. come out to my brewery again because there's three other breweries within three miles of their house. So I don't think the return on Facebook and Instagram and all of that is there or it wasn't there for us. Fair enough. Since it's sort of related, let's talk about craft beer awards. I know you have at least one. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's the one of the highlights of owning a brewery, right? It was I, I won a lot of awards as a home brewer, but that winning that first award in 2021 for um, Three Dragons, our Belgian Dark Strong Ale, that was, it was an amazing feather in our cap. And I say our because, you know, I didn't do it alone. I wrote the recipe and I supervised all of that, but, you know, other people brewed the beer and, and so forth. It was really a high moment in my career as a brewery owner to win that gold medal at the U.S. Open in 2021. People outside of the industry don't know that is as more and more breweries enter, it gets harder and harder to win. And it's not a small endeavor. Like GABF, it's about $500 a beer to enter. Ideally, you would enter four to six beers. Well, that's a significant investment. And when we won, we didn't see much of a return. It's not like we sold more Three Dragons after we won the gold. In the tasting room, we did. People would come in and and say, hey, I heard you won a gold medal. I'll try that beer. 
but distribution didn't do anything for us. Don't gloss over. Describe that day. What was it like when you found out that you won? How, where were you? What did, was it a letter, an email? It was an email. Yeah. I was sitting at my desk at home and I got the email and I was, I was, I was so excited because it was our first competition. I was waiting for the results. I got the email. I'm looking, I'm looking and we won and we won a gold medal and then it gets better. There was no silver medal awarded. Really? Yeah. Why? There were two bronze medals awarded. The way I interpreted it is that we were that much better than the other two entries that, you know, we got the gold. There was no silver awarded. There were two bronze awarded, which is pretty rare. If you look at, you know, people that enter competitions and things like that, like that doesn't happen. So it was a, it was a unique experience for sure. So I was elated. The staff were elated. We rode that high for a few weeks for sure. It was yeah. fantastic. Did you drink a lot of the beer? Yeah. I mean, it is one of my favorite beers in general. And so, yeah, every time, every, and in fact, every time I drink it now, it's one of the memories I have about drinking that beer is uh, winning a gold medal for it, for sure. Would you say that that was like one of your best memories of owning the breweries? Yeah, it was, it was definitely one of the highlights of owning the brewery. I will remember it forever. It is a fond memory for sure. Yeah, I just love it. Not to pivot back, but from coming off that high, what happened? Like, when did you start seeing the struggle and the, the downturn, I guess you could say? Or what did it look like for you? Because it's, it's different for everybody. Yeah, well, um, I mentioned that we opened July 11th, 2020. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty much the beginning of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Because you could only sell beer to go. So I had a line of people at the brewery and all I could do was sell them cans of beer. They couldn't taste it or anything else. I'm not looking for a pity party, but that is not the way to start a new business. All of the hype that you get is all gone. I mean, COVID killed all of that. So we, we started from behind, you know, from the beginning. It got better once the tasting room was open. So 2021 was a better year. <laughs> it was a better year for us. But we sort of struggled all along. So, you know, in order to be open as a tasting room, you had to be a, a restaurant. And we always, mm-hmm. the vision was to always have a small kitchen with a small menu, a dozen items, but not be a full restaurant. Just provide good snacking food or a light meal for people drinking beer. So, you know, went through all the trouble of developing a building, you know, real estate, developing a building, construction, opening a brewery. And then a year later, here I am trying to figure out how to open a restaurant Mm because you have to be a restaurant in order to be open. So the struggle just never stopped, right? And despite my only restaurant experience being a dishwasher and busboy when I was in high school, I was pretty proud of our little kitchen. You know, we turned out some amazing pizzas, And we had a charcuterie board that included Spanish ham and Spanish goat cheese. And it was it was really well done. I was very proud of that. Uh, The staff did a good job of presenting that and and educating the customers on what jamon serrano is and enjoying the Mediterranean olives that we serve. So I was very proud of our small kitchen. But the area wants, you know, cheeseburgers and French fries and other fried food. And so we, we couldn't compete with a full restaurant. One of the disadvantages, I know a lot of people were able to open those kinds of food establishments within their brewery with effectively government money, you know, the, the COVID EIDL or the PPP and opening in July, I assume you had access to really none of those funds as far as that goes either. So didn't have that free advantage, right? You, you hit the nail right on the head as a brewery that wasn't open yet and had no staff because I was smart, right? This was not my first business. I didn't hire all these people before I needed them. I didn't have payroll. 
you know, I, I do run a lean ship. I do run a cost-effective ship as a business. I was ineligible for all of the COVID money in every category. I, at one point, you could apply for a, a grant. It was either 1000 or $10,000. I can't remember. I mean, I have a copy of the paperwork. They said I clicked the wrong button. They said I wanted a loan instead of the grant. I was like, no, uh, here's the <laughs> proof that I said grant. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't accept that. So you don't get, I think it was a thousand or $10,000, just free money, just for applying because you were a business service business during COVID. Uh, yeah, they denied me that as well. Well, that sounds stupid. And it's, yeah, it was terrible. And at one point we leased out the kitchen to a restaurant group in the beginning and they weren't doing well. So they asked for a rent reduction. So I did, I, you know, cause I'm, I'm not an asshole. So I, I reduced their rent eventually. We mutually agreed to terminate their lease on the kitchen. And at that time, there was more COVID money. So that restaurant group, which was a couple of local <laughs> guys, they not only got rent reduction from me, but then in the end, they got free rent for the nine months they leased out my kitchen from the government. You didn't know that? They just kept... Oh. Nobody knew it at the time, right? Yeah. Like when, when I was giving them the rent reduction, that program didn't exist. And then after they left, that program came about and they were eligible. So in the end, they paid no rent for the nine months they had the kitchen. So then you ended up taking over the kitchen yourself basically at that point? Yeah, we. there was another restaurant. There was a chef and he was amazing. And we were going to talk to him, but it was going to cost even more money to renovate the kitchen to get it up to where we could do the kind of food that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So we, we passed on that and decided to do, you know, pizzas and, and giant pretzels and charcuterie boards and things like that. So that's the decision that, that we had made. Did that actually work? Was that menu enough to keep people staying? Because I know that's the one thing a lot of breweries have is like if you have sort of snackish food and great beer, people will come happy hour and then go eat or go eat and come after. Did it work to keep people there for dinner time? I think initially it did. The problem with you know, Parker County in particular, but even Fort Worth is honestly, I'll, you know, I'm not going to make any friends here, but they don't give a shit about craft breweries. They want a restaurant. They want food. They want their burgers. They want their fried, you know, chicken. If you have beer there, that's great. But sales will tell you that they're just as likely to order a Michelob Ultra as they are award winning, you know, three dragons. That's yeah. what they want is the lightest, lowest alcohol, least flavorful beer available. They want fried chicken, hamburgers, and Michelob Ultra. Are you trying to say everyone that lives in the Fort Worth area has no spice of life? No, not at all. I'm I think that's with painting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I knew, like I said, I wasn't going to make any friends with this statement, but I think you're painting those everybody with too broad a stroke there. I think it just comes down to a lack of passion for craft beer. People will say they have a passion for craft beer, but they really don't because they're ordering Ultra. My friends, you know, we go to, we go to chefs. And, you know, they're eating chicken wings and they'll order Michelob Ultra. And they're telling me, don't judge me. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's yeah. part of the problem. That's exactly. That's part of the problem is that, you know, they're ordering Michelob instead of whatever local craft brewery is around. I don't, I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this a little bit. Now, almost two years as a recovering brewery owner. I and mean, last weekend, I went to a party at a buddy's house and I bought a 12-pack, I think, of uh, Coors Banquet. And I never would have done that shit as a brewery owner. And I still kind of felt guilty about it. But at the end of the day, like... I wanted to drink a bunch and I didn't want to get drunk. And most of the breweries in my area that make something low alcohol, it tastes like shit. 
or it's not easily to pick up. I have to go to a certain liquor store on the one side of town. So I think in that sense, the caveat to that is I think Michelob Ultra is one of the worst beers on the market. And so I think if you drink that, you're still an asshole. But And maybe I am an asshole for drinking Coors Banquet, but I guess it remains to be seen. I, I think that's kind of representative of the DFW beer market, right? It's easily available. It's low alcohol. Every party barbecue I ever went to, everybody walks through the door with a 12 pack of Nick Ultra. Wow. And one thing I've talked many times on this show about when we started, the whole idea was to kind of take market share away from the big guys. And as of right now, we still haven't even hit 14%. So anytime you go somewhere out in the community, 86% of the people you meet don't drink craft beer and don't want to. I have a saying, you can lead a beer drinker to craft beer, but you can't make them drink. Yeah, you can try. Shove it down the throat. That, that's just it. You can lead them there, but you, you you can't get them to drink, and that's what we ran up against a lot. Of. Well, let's uh, let's take our final break and come back to the last segment. I want to hear about that decision. How did it come about? Where he's like, you know what, I can't do this anymore, and all the things that circled around that. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front, too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, this is it. Welcome back. Um, obviously, this is one of those parts that I like hearing about the most. Unfortunately, I guess I'm a weird sadist. So how did you know? Like, how, I'm going to preface that. I should have closed five times. There were five moments in my oh, yeah. brewing career where I was like, dude, this is it. And then we sat down like, oh, wait, here's a pathway we think we can go forward. And, and at the end of the day, it, we should have just cut our losses then. But we didn't. And it is what it is. So what did it look like for you? Like you, you two and a half years you were open, something like that? Yeah, we were open for two and a half years. You know, you're, you're probably going to get some really blunt, frank answers right now because I'm a couple of beers deep. <laughs> <laughs> So it will make for a better better interview because I'm I'm less filtered now than I was earlier. Thank you, alcohol. Appreciate yeah, that. Coffee. I should ship a bottle of bourbon to all my guests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, what did it look like for us? We closed because we chose to close, not because we ran out of money. Because mm-hmm. uh, we could have kept dumping money into the brewery until we were profitable. We closed because I was spending too much of my time at the brewery and not enough time with my wife when she had free time. I'm having to bartend on Saturdays. I'm having to stay late on Fridays. I'm having to show up and bartend on Sunday because, you know, no one showed up for duty. So that was a big part of it, right? So had the business been, you know, uber profitable, you know, I could have hired those positions and managed them and not closed. But it was really about how I want to spend my time. And I didn't want to spend my wife's free time at work. I wanted to spend it with her, especially since I almost lost her two and a half years earlier. I right. mean, she had a very rare form of cancer. She, you know, chance of surviving was less than 1%. So, so it was really about, you know, quality of life. I wanted to spend more time with her. I didn't want to deal with all of the staff 
stealing and lying and not showing up for work and all that stuff. It was really a quality of life issue. Like I said, did you have like some, a couple of times throughout there where some something happened and you just sort of went past it and then, you know, I guess wish you had closed earlier or did, did you, and conversely, do you wish that now, six months later or something like that, that uh, you're like, fuck, dude, if we had just done these three things, it would have changed it? I want to think this one through. No, we closed when we wanted to. We, we chose to close. So could we have done things differently? Yes. We could have brewed lower gravity, lighter beers, similar to Michelob Ultra. And we could have had sports playing on every TV that we had because we lost a lot of business because we were not a sports bar. We could have invested in the kitchen and offered fried chicken and french fries and hamburgers. So we could have done all of those things. My wife and I seriously considered doing those things. But at the end of the day, I would be operating a brewery that didn't resonate with my philosophy. I didn't want to make Michelob Ultra. I wanted to make craft beer. And I didn't want to be a sports bar. You know, we had TVs on the wall and we would occasionally put, you know, sports up, whatever game was on. I think toward the end, we actually did it on a regular basis. And I got to tell you, when I was in the tasting room at those times and, and whatever game was on was playing, I hated it. I, I literally hate it. I didn't want to be in my own brewery. I, I mean, it's an unpopular opinion because, you know, sports, especially here in Texas, is, is king, right? I mean, all the way down to high school football. But that's not my thing. I'm not a sports guy. I'd rather have the brewery be open, have the tasting room not be so boisterous that you can't have a conversation, right? For me, the craft beer is about enjoying the beer, having a conversation, whether it's with your friends or another patron or even the bartender. And hopefully the bartender can educate you on the beer that you're drinking, if that's what you want. That's the the environment, among other things, that I wanted to provide. And it was a it was a real miss locally. And, you know, maybe even in Texas in general, because sports is so popular. So do you think that your style of brewery would have been better in Orange County? Like that it may have been more successful with that kind of thing? Or I assume that the rent's higher, the competition's steeper there than it is here, but that's a guess. So I don't know. I left California so long ago that I don't really know what things are like. I have friends there and we talk and, you know, politics are stupid there. But, I, you know, it's hard to say because I've, I've asked myself that same question, you know would the brewery have done better somewhere else, whether it was California or some other place. And ultimately I come up with, I don't know. You have to know your local market and Parker County, Tarrant County, and I'm probably in many ways, all of Texas, you have to have sports. You have to play the game. You have, when I say the game, whatever sports game it is. And then in our local market, Michelob Ultra is king. So I would have to brew very low gravity light beers and sell them cheap. And, you know, as a brewer, you know that lagers are more costly than ales because of all the tank time, right? It takes, if you're brewing a lager correctly, you know, take you anywhere eight to 12 weeks as opposed to an ale, which is, you know, five days or 20 days, depending on, you know, what style you're doing. So I would have to run the business in a manner that did not mesh with my philosophy. It would be a business I would not be proud of and I would not want to do. And therefore, we close. We didn't run out of money. We just decided the changes that we would have to make would not be something that I would want my name on. I did pretty much the same thing. So we made, of course, esoteric and very strange beers with very hard to pronounce names. And 
the the beer that we sold the most of was Pickle Fucker, and uh, probably the one I was the least proud of overall. And at some point, I just, I mean, I did it during COVID. We were doing 1,100 cases a month at one point, and I'm just like, at the end of the day, I don't want to be Pickle Fucker Brewing Incorporated. That wasn't the plan. And so, try to get the other beers to take off, you know, barrel aged stuff, refermented with fruit and you know, interesting stuff. And we just never did. And at one point, I was like, you know, the market likes what it likes and it doesn't like what I do. And I don't have any desire to do this anymore. And the people that bought my brewery immediately stopped making the sour beers. They tore out all the barrels. They make, you know, normal beers and they have a crowd where I did. So, I guess they. Uh, interesting. Wow. Because, see, I think you're in Fort Worth. Uh, it's worked successfully for Martin Elf. Uh, you know, they, they make gimmick beers and whatever cereal you grew up as a kid, they have a, a beer based on that. And that model has worked really well for them. We were the opposite of that. We were the classic styles. And like you, I did my best at presenting my baby to the market and the market responded with, we don't care. And yeah. so it's it's time to close. Yeah, I, I feel for you because I know what that's like. So what did that look like for you guys? Did you um, – I know you posted something on Facebook talking about it, but did you have kind of a last week party? I've, I've seen like Orpheus uh, is doing everything must go, like come in and buy the fucking racks or whatever. Like, what, what did you do as far as the closing? What was the structure? I made the decision to close and then my plan was to announce it and then be closed three weekends later. So I told this, I met with the staff and I told them the night before I made the announcement. In my mind, you know, we would have three weekends of partying before we closed. Mm -hmm. And we saw the first two weekends, we saw a big uptick. You know, numbers were way up. It was, it was fantastic. And the last weekend that we closed was pretty good. Uh, it wasn't as good as I'd hoped, but it was pretty good. That was our public going out, you know, closing up, you know, ceasing operations. After that, I met with a bunch of friends at the brewery on a pretty semi-regular basis and we were just drinking, you know, whatever beer was left, right? Yeah. Don't want to go to waste. Like Yeah. So I was giving you know, I was giving beer to friends and it was all free and we had a really good time. There's an interesting question that so far everyone's answered the same way, but like I went to the closing for Sockdolager in Abilene on a few that and uh, I think it was Wait, Sockdolager closed? Mm-hmm. And in February, I think it was either February or January, and I think it was February. But- oh my gosh. They went out of business a month after Pappy Slocum. So it was like I interviewed them both for the podcast right after Pappy closed and a month before Sock Dollar closed. That was one of the breweries that I thought was a real success. Yeah. So it just goes to show you that, you know, by appearances, brewery might be doing well. But when you talk to their accountant, things are not good. Yeah. Well, behind the scenes makes a big difference. And we all have to look like we're doing well. We have to be popular. We have to get excited about a new beer release, even though we didn't pay rent last month or whatever. But right. The question is, they were slammed at the closing party. And obviously, you said you had an uptick. Was there ever a moment of, well, fuck, maybe we should just stay open? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes, there (laughs) was. You know, I hate to admit it. I really do. Because the outpour from our customers was great. In fact, you know, we have a glass walls between the bathroom and the brewery. You know, customers were writing such amazing things farewell and thanks for the beer and best beer in parker county best beer in fort worth so you see that from your customers and then that you know you know i was bartending a lot there at the end by choice because i wanted to connect with our customers you hear them tell you how much they appreciate the beer and the the place and the brewery and all that and, and there are moments where you're like well, well maybe we should maybe we should come back you know maybe we'll just 
take time off for the winter, you know, for the holiday and then come back. And then, you know, being an experienced entrepreneur, I go back and look at my profit and loss and that goodwill from the minority of people that came in doesn't justify staying open or reopening. It just doesn't justify it. Yeah, the, the decision still made sense on paper because even with that, it wasn't. And you couldn't have multiplied that times fifty-two weekends and said, "Hey, this is what our annual revenue for twenty twenty-three would have been right. if we'd stayed open." Yeah, right. But yeah, no, I get yeah, it. Closing, closing the brewery was it was a intellectual decision, not an emotional one, right? And it and we didn't run out of money, so it it was quality of life. And uh, you know, people kept asking me, "Well, you're still going to brew beer, right?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I'm I'm not." <laughs> Now, I may change my mind because, you know, it's difficult to find really quality beer here. There's a couple of breweries that make really quality beer locally. So I might homebrew again, but in general, no. Well, what was that like the last weekend when you finally shut the lights off in the tasting room? And, you know, obviously you came back and drank with your bros, but like that was the end of the commercial piece of the brewery. Was it sadness, relief, anger? Like what? What, what did you feel when you shut the lights? And you probably weren't there. Somebody else shut them off. But you know what I mean? Well, luckily I own the building. So there wasn't a final, like, this is it, you know, get all your crap out of here. And uh, it wasn't like I had a landlord pushing me out. So that part was nice. But I think the overall mood and feeling for my wife and I was we were sad. You know, it, it was it was five plus years full time of my life. I, it was something that I was incredibly passionate about. And it didn't, it didn't succeed. It failed. And so the potential, the wasted potential was sad, you know, and there was, you know, you, you go through moments of other emotions, but the predominant one was just sadness that it, that it was over that, you know, despite my best effort, I couldn't produce a product that was commercially viable in the local market. Well, maybe with hindsight, you'll come to find that you have the most pride about that piece of it, that. I made shit that even the dumbass market didn't appreciate. It was so great. But what uh, <laughs> what do you want Pathfinder to be remembered for? Like, what in your mind, what is what did it stand for? Like, what was that five years of your life meant to you? That is a really tough question. But I think ultimately it comes down to, you know, I was pursuing my passion and my dream. And it was the second time in my life where, well, maybe post, you know, corporate world where I got to do that. So I did it initially with the homebrew shop and I had the support of my wife. And the, the goal was to always open a brewery, and we did that. I had the support of my wife. So I accomplished things that I wanted to. I inadvertently developed property, which I didn't anticipate doing. I opened a brewery, which you know how difficult that is, right? There are dozens of challenges along the way. Every one of them is a showstopper <laughs> or near showstopper. So that's something that I accomplished. Won a gold medal at U.S. Open. That was another accomplishment. Opened a restaurant with, you know, busboy restaurant experience. So I accomplished, you know, a lot of things. I think that's the biggest thing that I take away from the brewery with me. And it is very nice to know that we brewed beer and people enjoyed it. That was nice to know. I just wish there were a lot more of them. (laughs) That they were better at bringing their friends in or they had more that were interested. Yeah. Well, so this may be a little early and, and you definitely can reserve the right to change your mind. But, uh, Based on that, honestly, would you go back and do it again? Uh, no, I wouldn't because I would have to brew something like Michelob Ultra, some low ABV 
light, tasteless lager and sell it cheaper than I want to. And I would have to have sports playing, you know, I'd have to have every sports channel imaginable playing in the room all at the same time. So yeah, no, I wouldn't do it again. I, I, the, the, the market wants something that I don't want to provide. And so, you know, it's never cap, you know, capitalistically speaking, it's never going to work. So would I do it again? No, but locally, would I, would I do it in another market? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I might give it a shot again in another market, but I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. So we may never get to answer that question. <laughs> well, if you were going to do it again, what would be, you're going to have a long list, but at the top, let's say maybe top one or two things, what would you change in that other market outside of how not during, you know, not changing to make my global ultra, hopefully, but other than that, what would you change? And I say that not knowing the right answer myself. And normally by the, this point in the interview, I at least have an idea of what I would recommend you change. I'm not sure what you did wrong. So, yeah, um, I'm not, I, I ask myself that all the time. What did I do wrong? And clearly, you know, I missed the mark on sports and selling cheap beer, but I didn't want to do that. So, did I do that wrong? Commercial, you know, viability of a company? I, I did it wrong. I, I should have made those changes, but the reality is I didn't want to do that. I did, that was not the kind of brewery I wanted to do. So would I, and, you know, I'm trying to answer your question. Would I do it again? And the answer is I pr- probably not. And it's not for fear of failing again. And it's not for agonizing all, all the hard work it would be to start over again, whether it was with the Pathfinder brand or another brand, because it's, you know, open your brewery is a ton of work. And even operating a brewery is difficult. It's not for fear of doing the work. It's just finding the market that wants what you provide. And that's that's the hardest part, right? Brewing the beer. Somebody told me early on that brewing the beer is the easy part of owning a brewery. And, you know, as long as you make good beer, that is true. There's a lot of mediocre breweries out there uh, selling cheap beer. But um, that is the easy part. The hard part is marketing and sales, right? Getting your message out, getting people to know about you. And then getting people to pony up the price for craft beer over macro beer, right? Bud Miller Coors. And that's just not something I see very much here. And now these days, it's really a tumultuous time in the craft beer business because you have so many breweries opening. There is it over 9,000 breweries now in the U.S.? Close to 10, and yeah. For the, yeah. And for the first, this is the first year that you have as many breweries closing as opening. And that has never happened before in yeah. the history of craft beer. I went back and in the last three years, we've lost more breweries than we had in the United States in 2010. Right. So that shows you how much the industry has changed. And you really didn't point to competition as being a really big issue that you experienced. I, I definitely did. I, I ran into a lot of competition stuff, at least from my overall perspective of what the market was. But what do you think? the future looks like, you know, if we get to 11,000 breweries, if, if there's still growth, like how did, how does somebody stay at the forefront of that heap of pile of, let's, let's call it beer, but most of it's not <laughs> fucking marshmallow shit in there or something. But. Poorly controlled fermentation. You know that, like a lot of your questions, that's difficult to answer because one, I'm trying to sell my equipment. I'm trying to lease my build, lease or sell my building. So, you know, it's not in my best interest to say it's a terrible time to open a brewery. But the reality is it's it's a terrible time to open a brewery. You can't get your beer on tap somewhere unless you knock somebody off. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a new kind of a new thing, you know, maybe in the last, you know, I don't know, I don't know. You've been in the game a lot longer than I was, but uh, there was a time when, you know, you just had to show up and they would take three or four 
uh, handles of yours at a time. And now you're, you're, you're really jockeying to get one handle. And if you are out of that particular beer at that time, or you had to raise your price because COVID raised the price of everything and they don't want to pay that price, they'll put somebody cheaper on. So it's a really competitive market right now. You know, there's a lot of three to seven barrel breweries out there that are going to wake up. You know, they've got six investors or 10, 12 investors, and they're going to wake up and say, wow, I've been working my full-time job and a full-time job at the brewery for three years, and I'm not making any money. The lease is going to come up, and the landlord's going to raise the rent, and they're going to have to make some difficult decisions about how much do they want to pay to continue their hobby slash business. That's what I see coming in the future. Well, what you talked about, you know, obviously you have you know equipment to sell. When we sold the brewery, my wife had an, a legitimate existential crisis about selling to somebody, and this is two years ago. And she was like, it doesn't make money. If I sell it to somebody, they're going to literally, I know they're going to lose money. I don't, I don't, I don't think they will. I know for a fact. And they, and they have and did, but it turns out the people that bought it had access to capital quite a bit more than they needed to do the brewery. And it was, it was kind of fun money in a sense. So they, they get to go spend their time owning a brewery. They have enough money to make it like not a big deal financially. And their social media is great. They're having fun. Those people are still out there. And in the wine world has been chock full of those people for 30 years. I think maybe beers is behind it that wineries are well known that they don't make money, but they're fucking cool as shit to own one. So maybe find that guy who's got some, or girl who's got some money and just doesn't need the profit. Maybe even needs an offset. Maybe they're too rich somewhere else and they need to lose some cash. In a very minor way, you know, I am that guy. (laughs) I just decided that. I'd rather have my quality of life spent on something else than this particular business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of what same idea. Like at some point the brewery was supposed to be my active retirement and it got to the point that it was, it wasn't worth the investment that I just, I just didn't want to keep investing in. And I wanted to go travel and do other shit and use that same money somewhere right. else. So now I drink. Other you said travel. I, I didn't go on vacation for five years during the development of the property and the opening and operation of the brewery. The brewery's been closed for almost six months now. I've been on vacation twice and I have another vacation coming. Quality of life. That's what it's all about. So I think and I think in the beginning, the brewery is that, right? Like we were going to bars and restaurants with our friends. Now we can go to our bar and restaurant with our friends. But I think it quickly changes where it, it's not contributing to quality of life. It's actually detracting from it. I, for one, am happy that you closed down and I wish you the best. Like I told you, I am going to post your equipment for sale the, the building for rent. I'll do what I can on my end as far as social media, but I think you're going to be much happier. Yeah. Luckily I, I, I want to, I'm going to sell the, well, let's see, how do I put this? A lot of times people that are looking when a brewery closes, they're looking to buy the equipment at fire sale prices. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a bank note that I'm trying to close out. So yeah, people that are looking for, you know, dirt cheap, Fire sell prices. Yeah, don't don't contact me. <laughs> <laughs> call, call somebody else. Yeah, you you might be able to find somebody else to do that. But uh, you know, all of the equipment has gone up in price since I bought it. Mm. So I'm certainly not going to sell it for you know a lot less than I paid for it. Nor should you. So one final question. It took me almost nine months to drink a shitty beer and not be mad about it. Um, after I sold my brewery, I say closed, sold, whatever. It's basically the same point. At that point, when I, what I sold it for is closing it. 
how how has this experience affected your relationship to alcohol? You're drinking some beer today. Like, do you still love it the way that you did? Did you get mad at beer at all? Did you have any sort of negative feelings towards the whole experience? I guess I uh, I am in the same place I was now post the brewery closing that I was pre the brewery opening. There is a lot of mediocre beer in the local market. It's very difficult to buy good beer, and so. Luckily, I have some beer of mine to drink, and I have friends in places that make really good beer sending me beer. Yeah, it's, it's you know, like I said, I'm not going to make any friends in, with this statement, but there's a lot of mediocre beer in the area. And it's frustrating because I come from a place where there are world-class breweries everywhere. Breweries in Southern California, if if and I saw it before I left. If you don't make exceptional beer, and I don't mean good beer, exceptional beer, you don't last more than a year or two. There's a, now, I will say this. The beer that got here nine years ago, the beer was horrible nine years ago. It has gotten better. All of the breweries now make better beer today than they did nine years ago. But some of it is still mediocre. So it's frustrating for me when I drink beer now. It's difficult to find good beer, and so I'm mostly frustrated. Well, I hope that uh, that goes away. It did for me, where I just don't give a shit anymore, but I don't know if that's necessarily better. But I do still get to – I go to breweries now, and I actually will make a weekend of going to visit stuff. I did not do that for the first year, almost a year and a half, actually, after I sold. So I've been enjoying it again, so I – I hope we can get back to that point. Maybe not with Texas. Yeah, there's a couple of breweries in town that, that make good beer. And I will go, you know, I'll go to their breweries and, and buy their beer. We talk a lot of shit on this podcast, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to say something nice about somebody. Which one's your favorite? Uh, Maple Branch. Maple Branch? Yeah, Stuart. Yeah, Maple Branch Brewery. Stuart makes really good beer. His He has excellent, you know, cellar practices. The fermentation's complete. I think he uses, for the most part, quality ingredients. He just does a really nice job on his beer. Yeah, it's true to style, right? Hmm. And he doesn't resort to gimmick beers and things like that. So, you know, that, that's my positive thing to say for the day. All right. Well, I appreciate that. That, that. that elevates the experience for all of us. So thank you for sharing that with us. Before we wrap up, what did I miss? Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? You didn't ask. I, it's not that you didn't ask, but um, I don't know if just how and, and this was, you know, I think you closed before COVID hit, right? It was after. So this will be two years in September. Two years. So, so. you you closed in 2020? 21. 21. So, yeah. you, so you got to experience COVID. And I, I don't think in any way anyone can underscore just how much of a difficulty, how much challenge that was to all industries, right? To everybody. And especially a starting up brewery. I think that was, uh, it was, it was, it was honestly, it was a fatal blow to us from the beginning. We lost all momentum that a new brewery gets. I mean, I could talk about the, the challenges of staffing, right? Finding people, retaining people, training people, and that at the end of the day, you, you know, you can't, you can't teach people ethics, right? They, <laughs> If they're going to steal from you and they're going to lie and they're going to participate in practices that aren't. There was a CEO. I need to look up who it was. I don't remember now. but some female CEO that said 
I don't hire people and teach them to be nice. I hire nice people. Like, which is like the stupidest, simplest thing ever to, but you're like, yeah, no, you can't, I can't hire someone and teach them not to steal. Like they're either a thief or not. Like, yeah. 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 I, 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 you know, we focused a lot on training because, you know, I, I was in it for 20 years and a lot of that was support and I'm basically a customer service person. And so our training involved a lot of that. You can train people and you can teach people, but you can't teach people to be ethical. So that was that that was a real challenge for us. Did you have a lot of I don't know. theft or just like people not ringing up cash yes. sales and stuff? That's a simple one and the same, right? Mm, you, yes. You give a, give a beer to a friend and, you know, that's theft. You make yourself a pizza and don't pay for it because, you know, staff had 50% off of food. And, you know, they had a beer allowance, so they got plenty of free beer. But, you know, if they're in there making a pizza and don't, you know, pay for it, that's tough. And then, you know, and when you talk to them about it and they lie about, you know, the cause of it, you know, there's not there's not much you can do about that. And that was rampant. I think some of that had to do with the times. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of common. The more brewery owners I talk to, the more the more, you know, complaints about staff ethics become a real issue. Everybody kind of sweeps it under the rug because, you know, we're a brewery, so beer should be free. But, you know, if everybody's taking free beer, at the end of the day, we sell beer. That's how we make money. That's supposed to be the and point, right? Exchanging beer for right. money. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to give it away. I want to be generous to staff, but I, I don't want to give it away either. So, yeah, that's probably a letdown. So, I don't know. I don't know if I have any other final comments. I'm happy I made the decision to close the brewery. I did it on my terms instead of, you know, the bank's terms or anything like, like that. I am slowly moving on from the whole experience, right? I haven't moved to Spain yet. That could be the paradigm we all aspire to. I'm good with my decision. And uh, now I'm I'm still drinking my beer, what's left of it, and uh, and moving on with my life. Yeah. Yeah. As you have done. That's what ultimately I would wish for all of my guests. And so I wish you the best that you move on. I hope that you're able to liquidate the equipment do what you need to with the building. But more importantly, I, I really want to thank you for sharing. Obviously, what we talked about today is personal. A lot of it is emotional and it's not something everybody can do. And I really appreciate that you were able not only to do it, but that you share it with everybody. Because I know for a fact that you've taught some people some important things and given some insights that we just haven't had on the show before. So thank you. You are absolutely welcome. And if anybody listening to this picks up a clue or some advice or a nugget of wisdom that they can use to make their business successful, then I think both you and I have been successful today. Yeah, that's all we can hope for, right? Great. Yeah. You're, You're absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, 
And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.